He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me is has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is, closest, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I've asked several people this week a rather imponderable question, a question that's really impossible to answer. I asked Gary Plowman. His mouth dropped open. Gary is usually not lacking something to say. That's a compliment. How many people have you met in your life can't even begin to think about that, can you? How many people have you met in your life? Okay, let's narrow it down. How many people have you met that have become, at one point or a time, at, a time, at one time or another, uh, a key player in the drama of your life? Still can't narrow it down. It's a real difficult question to ponder. We were driving through Chicago one time. I think we just had two children at the time. It was busy. It's always busy in Chicago. The freeway system is just so much fun to drive. And uh, we somehow got off the freeway. I don't know. We were in an exit-only lane, couldn't get out of it. I, I don't know how it happened, but we ended up off the freeway in downtown Chicago and didn't know how to get back on. We came up to, a, to an intersection, stopped for the light. A guy pulled up next to me. His window was down. I rolled my window down. Hey, can you tell me how to get back to the Dan Ryan or the Eisenhower or whatever it was? And he started to tell me the light change. Well, you don't linger in Chicago when the light changes. He just went like this, follow me. And I thought, oh, follow him. Where is he going? I could be going down a one-way street with no, uh, no outlet. This could be it for me and my family. I had to make a quick decision. I decided, okay, I'm going to trust this guy. I'm going to follow him. And he became momentarily a key player in the then drama of my life. I'll never see him again. To my knowledge, I'd never seen him before. But I'd like to know his name. I'd like to thank him for getting me back on the expressway. This week on Facebook, somebody posted a, a, a video uh, a police officer, I think it was in Chicago, police officer named Jeremy Henwood, a guy that has spent a couple of tours in Afghanistan, Marine, was on his duties and he was in a McDonald's taking a lunch break. And a little boy came up to him and said, can you loan me seven cents? 
He said, what do you need seven cents for, son? He said, I want to buy a cookie and I don't have enough money. He says, let me buy your cookie for you. And he chatted with the lad for a few minutes, asking what he wanted to do when he grew up. I want to be an NBA star. Well, you have to work hard for that, you know. Yeah, I know. Chatted with him for a few more minutes and he left. The last good deed that cop had ever done. As he sat in his squad car outside the McDonald's, somebody came by and shot him. And he died. I just wonder if that little boy someday will look back and see that man as a key player in the drama of his life. A kind word, a kind gesture, a man in uniform going out of his way for a little boy in the inner city of Chicago. We all have them. People who've played key, play, key roles in our lives. Not just spontaneous, relatively insignificant roles like getting back on the right free, freeway. We would have figured it out eventually. We might have seen a lot of Chicago real estate between now and the time we uh, figured it out and the time we realized we were lost, but we'd have figured it out. But there are people, how about next week we observe Mother's Day. There you go. How many mothers have been played a key role they were significant players in the drama of our lives. Well, you can narrow the field, and as you do, people begin to pop up. Experiences begin to come back to you. John talks about three players in the drama of our lives, and that's what we want to spend our time dealing with this morning. The first key player in the drama of our life is the word the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So there's a key player in the drama of our life. The Word whom we should receive. The term Word, as we know, designates Jesus Christ. And the reason we should receive Him becomes obvious when we know we ought, what we ought to know about Him. For instance, He is the true light. Now the Holy Spirit's going to have to drive this home. He is the true light. Look at verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Let me tell you a couple of things about light. First of all, it's a necessity for life. If you want to see how essential it is, try living without it. In the physical sense, just try living without it. How do you grow a garden without light? How do you grow a healthy body without light? Consider then the spiritual dynamic, and it's even more powerful. How do you get to know God without light? No illumination, no God. If there's a true light, there must also be a false light. Other lights, lesser lights. We know there are. William Barclay says of some of these lights that some were flickers of the truth. Some were faint glimpses of reality. Some were will-o'-the-wisps which men followed and which led men out into the dark and left them there. Sad but true. There are those that follow lesser lights than the true light. Something else we ought to know about light is that every person sees some of the true light at some time in their life. Notice the verse, verse 9 says, He enlightens everyone. Every man. Look at Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. I like John Calvin's words on this verse. Men bear the distinction between right and wrong engraven in their conscience. Thus there is no man to whom some awareness of the eternal light does not penetrate. One more thing we ought to know about light. When people love and respond to Christ as the true light, he makes them God's children. That's where, that's where John is going with this passage, with this address. Look at verse 12. All who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now not only does John use the figure of light to convey who Christ is, but he returns to the figure that we looked at last week in referring to Jesus as the Word, telling us more of what he did. What did he do? He became what we needed. He became a man in our world. Think about this. Jesus became a man in our world. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He remained perfectly God, but somehow, miraculously, became at the same time perfectly man. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Jesus was at the same time God and at the same time man in the full sense of the word. Some years ago when I went into youth ministry, and I was not that much older than some of the youth I was pastoring, but I was in youth ministry and I decided, you know, I've got to get closer to these kids. I've got to start, start acting like one of these kids. I've got to start talking like them. Well, that was cool. 26-year-old guy trying to talk like a 15-year-old. That just doesn't fit very well. I began to dress more like them. That was even more cool. I'm glad we don't have any pictures of that. I even tried their music. And then it dawned on me, you know, this isn't going to cut it. The best thing I could probably do for these kids is be myself and just be their friend. I couldn't go beyond certain points. Already at that young age of about 26, 27 years old, there was a a generation gap between me and 15 and 16-year-olds. I just had to be myself. The only one I've known who could really pull this off was Jesus. He could and he did. He became fully man. He fully identified with us. He even became man in order to represent God to us. And the the verse, he made his dwelling among us, if you want it more literally than that, it could well be read, he pitched his tent among us. This is John's literal idea. This expression would bring key images, especially to a Jewish mind, namely that of the tabernacle, this tent in the wilderness, this mobile worship center during their wanderings. But the question is this, what would John's use of the term signify? He pitched his tent among us. The presence of God, right? I mean, listen to God speaking to Israel regarding the tabernacle. Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. Notice what John says also in this verse. We have seen his glory. Put it together. Um, 
Let me find it. Let me get my verse. Hang on. I just checked out. I'm coming back. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. He puts these things together. Jesus pitched His tent among us so that we could experience the presence of God among us. Dwelling and glory go together in this verse. John picks up on the idea of the tabernacle in the Old Testament where the glory of the Lord was going to descend. The fact is this, just as the tabernacle erected uh, in the midst of Israel wasn't erected in the midst of Israel, so Jesus came to dwell among us. And what does he do? He lets us know who he was. Verse 14, we beheld his glory, glory, of the, glory of, uh, as, the, as of the only begotten of the Father. He was glorious. Interestingly, the glory of John, that John is speaking of him here is probably not the glory of his splendor. We know that he had splendorous glory. We can logically put our hands on verses of Scripture that can tell us this. But I think what John is really driving at was the glory of his lowliness here. Read it in that context. We've seen his glory. In what sense of the word? His splendor? No, not necessarily his splendor. His crucifixion. He manifested his glory. Jesus said just before he went to the cross, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. Glorified. That too is glory. Not just the positive highlight stuff, but the agony stuff as well. And he's full of grace and full of truth. This is what we're told in verse 14. He is gracious and truthful to the nth degree. I learned something about grace this week. It basically denotes that which causes joy. Interesting. Stands for winsomeness. And from this comes the idea of goodwill or kindness often associated with the idea that it's undeserved kindness. There we have grace. It's joy that translates into kindness. It translates, translates into a kindness that's undeserved by those who experience it. We all know the little acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. We didn't deserve it, but he gave it to us. He offered it to us. And he also offered to us his truth, and he is full of each. The text says he, he's full of grace and full of truth. This is designed to simply but emphatically establish that Jesus and truth and grace go together. You can't know truth without knowing Jesus. You can't know grace without knowing Jesus. And he lets us experience his grace and truth. Look at verse 16 and 17. Out of his fullness... We've all received grace in place of grace already given, or another way of saying that, we've all, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know what he did for us? He explained God. That's what he did. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, 
He has made him known. Jesus explained God to us. He gave us a full account of God. And God is just as Jesus has revealed him. What a tremendous thing to know. Especially to people who are curious enough to be searching. Do you want to see God? Try Jesus. That's the point. You want to know God? Receive Jesus. I met a girl one time. She's a basketball coach, college basketball coach. It was back when I was on staff with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Her name was Cheryl Olyowski. Good Irish girl with a Polish name. She, she told me that she was walking across the campus at Arkansas one day. She was reading a letter from her grandfather. And her eyes came on these words in the letter. Your life will be okay, Cheryl, honey, if you just trust in Jesus. And for some reason, she said, that day where I was on that campus and where I was in my life journey, that day, that spoke to me like it had never spoken to me before. And she said, I, on that path from one building to another at the University of Arkansas, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And she says, you know what? It has revolutionized my outlook. It has revolutionized my lifestyle. It's revolutionized my life. There's a key player in the drama of your life, either, in, either potentially or in reality, and that key player is the Word whom, should be, whom we should receive. Now I'm mindful that that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone here has received Him. So we need to talk about this a little bit. What does it mean to receive Jesus Christ? Just to cognitively know about Him? Just to accept the fact that there was this dude one time in history that really did walk and talk and minister here and he really did crucify him and yada, yada, yada. Is that all it means is to cognitively understand it? No. It means to accept the fact of who he is and what he came to do and to ask him, then to act on that fact and ask him to forgive us and ask him to come into our life and ask him to take control and turn our lives over to him. It could be that there's someone here who's played the game but hasn't gotten into it, hasn't really truly accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want you to know something. You can do that during this message. You say, really? I thought that came at the end of an altar call. No, it comes when you're ready, just like it did for Cheryl Olyowski as she walked across the campus at the University of Arkansas. It made sense. She responded. She submitted her life to Jesus Christ, and he came into her life. If you decide to do that during the course of this message, I'd like for it to ask you to do something. I'd like for you to circle your name on your connection card. And by the way, by the way, just happens to dawn on me, not all of you are taking care to fill out your connection cards every week. And we ask you to do this for a reason, because we don't want to lose people between the cracks. You see, well, we're not a big, big congregation. No, but we're big enough to lose people between the cracks, and we don't want to do that. And we want to know what's going on in your life. So we ask you to fill out your connection card. Even if you don't, your, your information generally doesn't change. You don't move every week. We don't need a new address from you unless you move. So you just put your name down, same old, same old for the address. And then, you know, you can use the connection card for other things as well, for prayer requests, for messages to us that you things that you want us to know about. 
But do it if you would. And today, if you decide to respond to Christ during the course of this message, all you have to do is tell him you want him. Tell him you're sorry for going your own way. You want to go his way. You surrender your life to him. And let us know about it by circling your name on that card because a key player in the drama of your life wants to be Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a, he's a key player. Now there's another key player in the, in, in the drama of our lives. And we would call him a witness whom we should copy, whom we should emulate in our life. And particularly, the witness in question is the witness of John the Baptist. His role is very significant. Notice three things about John the Baptist. Number one, he was a mere man. This is important. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. There was a man. Now John seems at pains to show this, and for obvious reasons. Some of John the Baptist's um, followers were giving him more attention than they were giving Jesus. You'd think he was divine by the way they were acting. John wants to set the record straight. And there were others who were denying Jesus' divinity. The Docetics in particular, a group of people with a theological bent. So John calls him a man. There was a man. He did that on purpose. It wasn't just a slip of the tongue. It wasn't just something he casually said. And now this is in contrast to Jesus having been called the Word. Jesus is the Word. John was a man. And he states that he came. Notice what it says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. And you can pick it up on the latter part of verse 8. He came only as a witness to the light. He came. Interesting. The word for came is the same word that is translated made in verse 3 of John, of John chapter 1. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Same word translated here in verse uh, 7 and 8 as came. Why? What difference does it make? Well, the idea in verse 6 is that John the Baptist came into existence. He didn't always exist as had Jesus. He was a mere man. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he was merely a man. He was made. He came. He had also a specific motivator. There was a man sent from God. Now listen to John's own testimony on this, John the Baptist. I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. John the Baptist had a mission. But it was more than his own idea, this mission. He had a specific motivation as well. Look at verse 7 and 8. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Everything else he did, preach repentance and baptize people, was merely to buttress, to facilitate his witness. He came to help men make a decision about Jesus Christ. So John's role is very, very significant. His role was also unique, and at the same time, it was a model. 
See, John's primary motivation in life stands as our example. And I took time to look up references and put them in your message outline. You might find this helpful. All the times that John stated why he came. First of all, we just read uh, John 1, 7, and 8. Let's read it again. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This is what John the Beloved, John the Apostle is saying about him. Jump down to verse 15. John the Baptist testified concerning him, Christ. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Look at 119. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He told them who he was and why he had come. Verse 32, then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Christ, referring to his baptism. Chapter 1, verse 34, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. And then chapter 3, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with us, with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. The one you testified about. This was John's uh, big deal in life, to testify about Jesus, to be the forerunner of Jesus. And then John 5.33, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. So John had a particular calling in his life. He was a man but he was sent from God and he was to herald the coming of Christ. Say, what does that have to do with us? John's emphasis as a witness is not only an example for us, but it's the same role we're we're called to fulfill. In fact, we're more than called to fulfill it. It, We are inevitable to fulfill it. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is a very well-known passage of Scripture. You get the idea of these ever-widening circles, and it's about us, so we're the ones who are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Here's the fascinating thing about this. This verse is not telling us what we must do. It is telling us what we will do when Christ's Spirit comes to dwell within us. My presence before you today in part is that of a witness. I'm here to tell you Jesus came. I'm here to tell you He's coming again. I'm here to tell you he wants you to go to heaven. I'm here to tell you he came to pay a price as a ransom for your sin. That's witnessing. Our presence in the community is that of a witness. And what, of what are we to witness? We're to witness of the light. Jesus is the light of the world. We're to witness of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're to witness of the Word. And we're to witness about Jesus. It's a lot to talk about. It's the beginning point for dealing with life realistically. And people will respond to the information. 
Believe me, they will respond to the information. Let's go back to Cheryl Olyoski, this basketball coach. I talked to her, and I said, Cheryl, since you've come to this realization of who Jesus is in your life and you've decided to follow him, have you shared it with any of your players or uh, have you had a chance to, to give this message away to anybody else? And without batting an eye, she rather nonchalantly said, oh yeah, sure, last fall, 10 of my players accepted Christ. Wow. How did that happen? She told them about him. That's how it happened. I mean, My hat is off to those of you who are in the marketplace day after day. What an opportunity you have. My hat's off to you that, that they're taking responsibility for lifting up the name of Jesus at your school, on your playground, uh, in your neighborhood. It works. It really works. You say, well, I would like to do it, but I'm a little timid. I don't know a lot about Scripture. You know what? Start out with your own story. Tell people your own story. Let me tell you about my kids. Now, I'm not just bragging about my kids. I've seen this happen in many other families as well. Families influence people. Individuals influence people. When we moved to Delafield, Wisconsin, our oldest daughter, Sarah, who worships here, they're out of town this weekend, but not because she knew I was going to talk about her. Um, but she was in sixth grade. And she met a girl in sixth grade by the name of Shannon. And they became pretty good friends. She began to ask Shannon to youth group activities, and Shannon was responding quite nicely to the point where Shannon's mother was growing concerned. This little group that meets at the Cushing School on Sunday mornings, we don't know anything about them. Are they part of mainline Christianity? Are they a cult? Who are they? What are they? And so she called us. Could you come to my house and visit with me? I'd like to know more about you. That's a responsible mother, by the way. And we did. We sat down with Nancy and we talked to her for, at length. Long story made short, because of that, our daughter's influence, Shannon came to faith in Christ. Ended up going to Wheaton College, by the way. Um, her mother, Nancy, came to Christ. One of her two brothers came to Christ. We saw the same thing happen in the lives of our other children. Our son, Hugh, had a couple of neighborhood boys that he played with. Found out they were, well, we found out they were from a single parent family, and uh, the mother was struggling with a lot of issues, and, and we got acquainted with her. Her name was Wendy, and Wendy committed her life to Christ. This is what can happen when we just live our lives out there in the open in front of people, and we're willing to tell our story. We are like John the Baptist, we are a witness, and his witness we should receive, we should copy it, we should emulate it. This is a word of encouragement. It's not a word of indictment. That's not my point this morning. I just want you to know if you share your story, it will have an attraction to other people. It will be attractive to them. A key player in the drama of our life then is John the Baptist. And the witness he, he bore. And we can do the same. Circumstances are obviously a lot different, but we can do the same. There's one more player in the drama of our life. There's a world which we should reject. Now this is not a, an individual, it's not a person, it's an entity. The world we should reject. If you want to emphasize something, how do you do it? You repeat it, right? Paul's good at that. 
John the Beloved is good at that. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Three times in the space of just a few words, John uses the word world. Did you know that this, this uh, word cosmos, this word world, is used 185 times in the New Testament? And did you know that 105 of those times it's in John's writings? Now the word can have more than one meaning, even in John's writings. But he gives it one very distinct slant that he uses quite often. The world means mankind in opposition to Christ. So if this is the background, notice what John says about, uh, about it in the text before us. There are four things. It has known the presence of Christ. This world has known the presence of Christ. He was in the world. And the verb is important. He was, carries the idea of continuous action. He wasn't just here fleetingly, but he was here long enough for people to get a glimpse of him and understand a little bit about who he was. He was in this world. The world has known it. Secondly, this world was created through him. We go back to chapter 1, verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that, what, that has been made. Look at verse 10, the second part of it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, so there it is, he was, the world was created by him, it was indifferent toward him. Look at verse 10 again. The world did not recognize him or did not acknowledge him. Now, there's a subtle shift that goes, goes on right here. John, uh, in the first two instances, the reference to world in verse 10 has to do with the earth and all within it, including mankind. But in the latter use, it's just mankind. People recognized him, but they wouldn't acknowledge him. They, he says he, they didn't recognize him. They understood who he was, perhaps, but they wouldn't recognize him. They wouldn't acknowledge him. Not knowing him means more than merely not recognizing him. It means not getting around to know him. Failing to love and live in right relationship with him. What it suggests is indifference. The world, by and large, is indifferent to Jesus Christ. Even to the point of rejection. Now we know that isn't always true of all people. That's the reason we share, because there are people to be one and they will respond when they hear the truth. But generally speaking, the world is indifferent to Jesus Christ. I shared this story a couple of times, and I'm going to chance it again. I was listening to WCCO radio one, one morning, back when Eleanor Mondale and Susie Jones had a program on CCO in the mornings, and they were interviewing the stepson of C.S. Lewis. And it just thrilled my heart to see this guy stand his ground and give witness to the light. Something was said about Jesus Christ, and it was either Eleanor Mondale or Susie Jones who said, well, you know, I don't have any problems with God, but I think I have some real problems with Jesus Christ. And C.S. Lewis's son, stepson says, that's all right. You just keep searching for truth, but I'll guarantee you when you find it, you're going to be looking Jesus Christ square in the face. And I thought, on CCO Radio, hallelujah. Good news. The world seems to be rather indifferent. Look at verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. 
The world may have been indifferent to Jesus, but Jesus was not indifferent to the world. They may not have been interested, nor may some of them not be interested now in God, but he is interested in them. And his interest withstood the most horrible expressions of indifference. Prideful rejection, ultimately hostility, active open rejection, aggressive retaliation. You know the story of the cross. It's not a pretty picture at all. Notice how God responded to this by allowing those who repudiate the world's mentality to become children of God. Look at it in verse 12. Again, we've already read it, but we'll read it again. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Allow me, if you will, an observation and an admonition. The observation. Worldly pride can keep people from getting to know Christ. Initially, and even after they've followed him for a while, they can grow cold in their faith. We must be careful. None of us are ever exempt from the spirit of this age. So, the admonition. We need to constantly check our attitude. One of the prayers that I prayed for my kids when they were little, and I still pray for them today, God, and I pray sometimes with tears in my eyes for them because I can see so many who have followed and fallen away. I say, dear God, don't let them become nominal in their faith. Don't let them be name only in their faith. May they stand sure on the rock, Christ Jesus. May they always be in love with you. May I always be in love with you. Let, not, let me not become insensitive or our family become insensitive and ultimately reject someone who's loved us so much, especially when that someone is God. And i got to tell you that as well this morning. We cannot put our lives on autopilot. And if you let Satan in the car, he's going to drive. We must be careful. We must know to whom we belong. We are not of this world. There are three players in the drama of our lives. One is a person to be received. One is a person whose actions are to be emulated. And one is an attitude to be rejected. The big question of the morning is this. How are we responding to these key players? How are we responding? Only you know. You can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool yourself and you can't fool God. How are you responding The whole quality of our lives is affected by our choices regarding these players. Let's choose wisely. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We've done our best this morning to try to explain it and unfold it, lead the meaning from it and deliver it to these people. We pray, Lord, that it will not have been done in vain, that you would minister to each of us. If there are people here who need Christ today who have not yet yielded their lives to you, I pray that before the service comes to an end, they would make a choice to follow you. And for those of us who followed long, may we continue to follow hard. Help us not to become nominal, lax, lackadaisical, insensitive, irresponsible, 
in the way we live. Help us to be good witnesses. Help us to be good followers. In Jesus' name, amen.